Hey, Rebels. Yup. If you listen to this podcast, that means you're a motherfucking rebel. And that means you're cool. So, like, just accept it. I'm so fucking pumped to bring you this episode. I don't usually give context to what you're about to listen to, but I feel in this case, pun intended, as you'll see, it's warranted. My guess is the legendary detective Greg Kading. And if you're like, bitch, who is that? Let me enlighten you. You heard a Tupac? You heard a Biggie? Yeah, he solved the murders. Okay, and let me tell you how this all went down. Back in 2006, Greg was put in charge of a task force. It was actually the second task force that the LAPD put together to solve the Biggie Smalls murder. And during that investigation, they ended up unraveling the mystery behind Tupac's murder. Unfortunately, everything they needed to bring things to trial didn't work out exactly as they were supposed to be. So, you know, they are still considered unsolved cases. Doesn't mean we don't, don't know what happens, but they are considered unsolved. So let's go back to July of this year. I finally get a hold of Greg. I've been like hunting this man down to try to get him on the podcast. I finally get a hold of him. And the most hilarious part is he acted so oblivious. He's like, well, what are you talking about? My contact information's everywhere. I'm like, no, it's not. But neither here nor there. Um, I was like, are you still willing to discuss the case? Because his book came out in like 2011 and it's been 10 years since that point, over 10 years since that point. And the case is about 30 years old now. And he's like, absolutely. I would love to still discuss the case. And he hinted that there are more developments on the horizon. And I was like, okay, fantastic. So we booked him for the end of September. And then I went to work. I reread the book, Murder Rap, which is amazing. Highly suggest that you go get it. I binge watched every documentary possible. So about a week into my research, all of a sudden, the news broke that that Las Vegas PD just issued a search warrant in connection to Tupac's murder. So this is one week after I get off the phone with Greg and we have him booked for the podcast. So I was like, whoa, that's fucking crazy. And it's not that I didn't believe him or didn't think, you know, anything would happen when he was saying there's more developments on the horizon. It's just the wheels of justice just move at such a glacial speed. I just was shocked, you know, <laughs> that it happened so quickly. So, of course, that even burns my fire even greater to get more research done and just be ready for all of these different questions um, that I had for him. And just to understand how the case got to, you know, the enigma that it really is today. Um, so, fast forward to the day of recording. I'm in the waiting area where I meet my guests. You know, I'm getting my vibe, I'm getting my zone, my adrenaline's pumping, I'm st I'm looking over my notes, I'm, you know, fixing my face because I gotta take all these pictures and look cute, and yeah, just think of like Anchorman in the beginning where he's like, I'll now brown cow, yeah, that was me, and 
all of a sudden Greg walks in. I'm like, oh, that's him. Yep. Instantly recognize. Only been looking at your face for three fucking months, but instantly recognize. I walk over to him. I'm like, oh my God, Greg, I'm Bells. Nice to meet you. I'm so excited for this. And he's like, Bells, have you got the latest news? And I'm like, no. And I really hadn't. I was so focused on like what I was going to say to him. I just, I wasn't even looking at my phone. He's like, Beefy D was just arrested for the murder of Tupac. I said, are you kidding? This is insane. I literally hugged this man. I don't know this man. I hugged him. He thinks I'm weird now. That's fine. We're about to spend three hours recording together. No big deal. It's fine. And I, I mean, talk about timing. I swear, like how serendipitous the universe planned our fucking meetup. This is just crazy. So I wanted to give you that context. We literally start talking about how he was arrested, how Greg got it to this point. Of course, Greg's been off the case for a while, obviously, but, you know, all of these things that he found, he and his team found, led to this moment. So that's where we start in the podcast. Please enjoy it. We talk about a lot of different things. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Love you, Rebels. Strap in. God, we get rebellious, rebellious, sex, body, power, we get including awesome. All right, feel good? Yep. All right, awesome. So, Keithy D has been arrested. Keefe D has been arrested. So when did this happen? What time? What, what is going on? I don't know the exact time, but it was um, early hours of the morning today mm-hmm. um, on the West Coast in Las Vegas. So he's been arrested, and there's I think there's going to be a press conference at 1230 Pacific time today. So Amazing. Right now. Yeah. Right now. Okay, yeah. so we'll have to watch that right after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, your phone must be ringing off the hook. Blowing up. Uh, so whenever they find something, even when they did the search warrant for Keefe's house back in July, did you know beforehand that that was coming or do you just know the second it happens? I, I knew that they were actively working the case. Okay. I didn't know that they were doing a, a search warrant on that particular day. Like mm-hmm. They don't keep me abreast of the, right. you know, the internal decisions of their investigation because they're right. trying to manage the integrity of it all. Um, and protect it. So I didn't know, um, but like everybody else, you found out almost immediately because it went viral. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, all the studios picked it up. It was. Do you have someone at Las Vegas that lets you know about things, or well, it's more just LAPD that would keep you informed? No, the current investigator out there in Las Vegas, a guy named Clifford Mogg, mm-hmm. he's the active current investigator on Tupac's case, mm-hmm. and so we've had some, you know, discussions. They're really more of a one directional discussion. I'm mm-hmm. providing him with information to the extent that I can, but he's got to be cognizant of the fact that I'm no longer in law enforcement. Right. So, um, but he's done a great job. And, you know, just the fact that uh, they've gotten it this far is, it's, it's really exciting to me. It's amazing. Yeah. So obviously I had this amazing outline prepared. This news just like blew both our minds. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go, let's jump right to Keefe. So okay. you had a proffer agreement with him. How does this work with how they just arrested him? Is what you recorded with him, does that 
affect this in any way, shape, or form? Like, how does this all work? Well, it, it affects it in a kind of indirect way. So okay. back in 2009, we wanted to talk to Keefe D, but we knew that he wasn't going to sit down and be honest with us. And so mm -hmm. we had to figure out a way to compel him to tell the truth. So we put a lot of effort and energy into building an airtight narcotics case against him because we believed and then became aware of the fact that he was doing interstate narcotic trafficking. Mm -hmm. So we started to introduce informants and tapping his phone and purchasing undercover um, kilos of cocaine and gallons of PCP and until we got to a threshold where we knew the U.S. government would prosecute him for a, essentially a life case. Mm -hmm. um, and so we approached him and said, hey, we've got you dead to rights. Uh, if you want to come in with your lawyer and sit down and have a discussion, maybe mm -hmm. maybe you can do some damage control. Yeah. So he does. He comes in with his lawyer. His lawyer and the U.S. attorney come to an agreement, which is known as a, a proffer agreement, mm -hmm. where he sits down and answers questions honestly. And in not in return, but in response to that, we cannot use his self-incriminating statements against him. Okay. Doesn't mean that he's got immunity. He just... At the table, at that time, we can't use his own confession against him. But as time goes by, he begins to publicly boast about his role in the murder. Yeah. And all of that is outside of the proffer agreement, and that can be used against him, and that's how we got to where we are today. Gotcha. Okay. Now, when you were interviewing Keefe, is there a reason you guys don't use lie detectors during that time? Like, were you afraid? Like, Is that allowed, number one? Of course, yeah, it's allowed. Okay. It's a tool that law yeah. enforcement can use. Um, was there a reason you guys chose not to hook him up to a lie detector test when he was telling this story? Yeah, because I don't have a whole ton of faith in lie detector tests. I've okay. seen him fail too many times. Okay, so in general, is that is that kind of the, um, is that across the board for most cops? It's not really worth it? No, I think a lot of investigators have a lot of faith in them. Mm -hmm. I just don't. Um, for good reason. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen people pass when, when they're guilty. Yeah. And I've seen people fail when they're innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so when you first saw Keefe, like you finally, you finally get him, you're like, okay, now we got something on you. Mm -hmm. You kind of been chasing him or at least his name had been coming up during this investigation for a while. Right. Were you kind of like, oh, damn, that's Keefe now? Like, did it kind of take you back? Not in, like, a starstruck way, but just mm -hmm. I, you've been, like, this ghost I've been chasing for a while? Yeah, to some degree, because, again, we've been doing this long-term um, narcotic investigation of him mm -hmm. and surveillance and wiretaps and all of these things that led up to us confronting him. And so, yeah, once we got to that point, it's like, all right, all of this has now come to fruition. All that effort is going to pay off, hopefully. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was that sense of elation. And we were actually originally just interested in any any information he might know about the murder of Biggie Smalls. Right. And when we discussed that with him, he's like, I don't have much to tell you there. I think that it was probably Suge Knight because of what happened in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And he goes, but I can tell you about what happened in Vegas, alluding to what happened to Tupac. So we changed the subject. We, you know, set up into another interview mm -hmm. and that's when he discloses uh, what went down out there the night that Tupac was shot. Can you walk through how he explained that to you? Mm -hmm. We went through the history and the conflict of what yeah. was going on between Death Row and mm -hmm. Bad Boy Records, the history and conflict that was going on between Suge Knight and Puffy Combs, the history and conflict that's going on between Biggie and yeah. Tupac and then of course the gangs that affiliated with him were already by nature at odds, the Bloods and the Crips. Yeah. 
So there's different levels of conflict, and then there's this long history also. You know, one of Puffy Combs's right arm men, a, a bodyguard of his, had shot and killed one of Suge Knight's bodyguards in, in Atlanta years before. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole ongoing feud um, that just began to, everything was just fueling that, whether it was the lyrics of songs or, mm-hmm. or you know, conflicts behind closed doors at award ceremonies. And just It just kept feeding itself yeah. until things culminated in Las Vegas. Yeah. So, and then during that interview, um, Keefe said that Puffy basically was like, I'd give anything to have their heads. Correct. He tells us that he had more than one conversation with Puffy. Mm-hmm. Um, Puffy knew that he was um, in Suge Knight's crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Suge Knight had the will and the ability to, to harm him uh, whenever he came out to Los Angeles. So he was in fear and in des- you know, he's desperate. And I believe it's out of that sense of desperation that he makes these comments to Keefe D. Personally, I don't think that he had a true intention of seeing Tupac or Suge shot mm-hmm. and killed. But I do believe he was really afraid for his own life and had said some things that he probably regrets saying because ultimately what comes to fruition is what he had talked about. Even though there was a discussion of a monetary exchange, do you still feel that way? Even though, like, he, he's saying, like, yeah, I'll do it. Or, or he, he said that Puff offered a million. But we, in our daily conversations and in language, we use exaggerated language. Yeah. You know, we do. You know, I see a car like, oh, man, I'd give you a million dollars for that fucking car. You know, we talk like that oftentimes. And I think that that was the nature of these conversations. I don't think he was like, okay, let's have a contractual agreement. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay you on the front end 500000 And if you do it, I'll give you. It was not like that. It wasn't that serious. It was just a guy who's talking like, man, I'm fucking scared. Yeah. Is there anything you can do to help me? I'll give you whatever you want. We want a million, whatever. Yeah. It's like that kind of conversation. But even though, I, I believe he was scared, no doubt. I mean, Suge Knight is <laughs> everything I've ever researched about this man. Even before I knew anything about the case, when I was younger, mm-hmm. I mean, the stories about Suge Knight, he was a scary person. He was literally the pit bull that terrorized the neighborhood. Right. I mean, there's stories of him dangling um, vanilla ice off the the balcony. He went after Jimmy Iovine. I mean, he's... He's just notorious. Um, but knowing Keefe D's background, you don't think that was in the back of Puff Daddy's mind when he was saying this? Like, man, this guy could take me seriously? Or do you think he was just so riddled with fear he wasn't even thinking that far? I don't think he was thinking that far. I thinking he was. He, I believe he was thinking more in terms of, like, you guys just need to provide me protection. You're the street guys. Yeah. Right? Because Keefe did protection for him before. Yeah, they had done some security. Mm-hmm. Not, not you know, actual legitimate security. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you've got these street conflicts, mm-hmm. you know, um, you want to have guys that recognize their enemies. Right? They recognize the guys from the street from Compton who might be there on behalf of Suge. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, some security guys aren't going to know who those guys are. But Keefe D will. And his crew yeah. will. Because they grow up around these guys. They yeah. know each other. And so I think that that's what it was. It's like, I need you to be close and, and watch my back. And if, you know, if you can do anything to settle this or solve this, mm-hmm. please do. When Keefe said Puff Daddy's name, was that the first time you ever heard Puff come into the conversation? Oh, no, no. Puffy's name has been all over the Biggie Smalls investigation, the Tupac okay. investigation. Again, there's this long history. 
Right. Okay. And to go to my, you know, um, to, to go to that, re- that other point, mm-hmm. Puffy knows that Suge holds him responsible for the murder of Jake Robles in Atlanta. Right. right. It was Puffy's guy that k- shot and killed Suge's mm-hmm. best friend. Right. So you've got that already. Like, he holds me responsible for the murder of his, of his buddy. Right. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So he's going to retaliate against me. I've got it. He's, he's out to get me. Mm-hmm. And so walk us through what happened that night in Vegas. So Mike Tyson fight, mm-hmm. Tupac and crew are there. Let's walk through all the characters that was there um, from the fight. Okay. So you've got everybody, the death row guys, their entourage, a bunch of gang members from Compton, Mob Pyru and Looters Park Pyru guys. And they're part of the death row entourage, Suge Knight's personal entourage. And Tupac's, of course, in within that group of people. They go out there to watch the fights because this is what they do. Suge Knight's got a house out there. He's opening up a nightclub out there. He's got a bunch of activity going on out there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a lot of gangsters from L.A. would go to Las Vegas to watch uh, Mike Tyson fight. Mm-hmm. It's a very popular thing to do. And the Southside Crips, Keefe D and his crew had been doing it for years also. They had gone out there mm-hmm. to watch the fight. And until Tupac Shakur runs into KVD's nephew, Orlando Anderson, in the lobby of the MGM and decides to run across the lobby floor and sucker punch Orlando, and then the rest of the entourage jump on Orlando and start stomping him and do a mm-hmm. gang beatdown, that puts everything into motion. Yeah. You know, that, that, that resurrects all of the conflict again. And um, th- that was preceded by an incident at the mall in Los Angeles months before where some guys from the Southside Crip, the gang Southside Crips, had run mm-hmm. into some guys from the mob Pyru. There was a, um, a gang fight, and then a medallion, a death row medallion, was stolen off of one of the death row entourage guys. And so that individual who had that chain, that medallion stolen, mm-hmm. was actually standing with Tupac Shakur in the lobby of the MGM. Mm-hmm. And he points out, Orlando Anderson, there's one of them motherfuckers that yeah. stole my necklace. Don't worry, you can curse. So, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> because otherwise you're going to just delete it. Probably more than once. Um, so he um, points out the individual that had been involved in stealing his medallion. Mm-hmm. Tupac takes it upon himself to run over there and sucker punch him. And that puts everything in motion like yeah and then everyone starts stomping on him and i actually love your uh 2015 documentary because it shows more of the video you only usually see small clips of like tupac doing the initial hit and then then they start basically stomping him but in your um other documentary you see that when he's walking away it kind of like becomes a vacuum of people like going after Tupac because that's how popular he was. It's fascinating to see that. Yes. I saw that too. And I'm, it's like a, a good word is a vacuum. It just sucked everybody in and they just started to gravitate towards him as he's yeah. hustling out of the casino. It's like the Pied Piper. You know? Yeah. And, and when they do it in these short clips where it just shows him hitting Orlando at first, it makes it seem as if no one understands Tupac's is there. But the reality is he was so popular at that time and because of his fame, that kind of put him in the wrong place, the wrong time, wrong people. Wrong people. Yep. So he goes out. He's out of the club at that point, And I think he's dating um, Quincy Jones' daughter. And then they. Kadata. Yeah, Kadata. And then, yeah, they were going to go to Suge Knight's club that night. 
Well, she wasn't, but... And she chose not to, which is amazing that she... She either chose not to or was asked not to. I don't really know mm. because now you've already had this, this conflict that took place. There's a fight. They know their enemies are in town. Whether Tupac said it, it's probably safer if you stayed behind. Maybe that's what kept her back at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know the answer of that. Yeah. Or maybe she just decided she didn't want to go um, because of the fight. Maybe she was disappointed that he got himself involved in something like that. Right. Was there any other video evidence showing Keefe and Orlando like talking afterwards or that would kind of point them, you know, that that Orlando's upset about what just happened and so is Keefe? Was there any other video evidence like that? Well, there is some video, you know, because there's cameras all over the um, the, the MGM casino. Mm-hmm. And so those cameras are picking up Orlando Anderson as he's migrating through the crowds. Mm-hmm. And you see, because he's wearing this very distinctive jersey. Mm-hmm. All right. And so you can see him migrating through the, the crowds. After the fight, you see him speaking with a couple of individuals. You actually even see him being detained by... First, the casino security and then Las mm. Vegas Metro shows up and you see him on camera dealing with the aftermath of the fight. Okay, so Orlando, people actually come up to him versus Tupac just leaves. Just leaves, yeah. And no one ever uh, tries to interact with Tupac besides obviously the fans. <laughs> well, yeah, so all, all of this happens quite quickly. There's a fight, a beatdown, mm-hmm. and then the guys responsible for stomping down Orlando, they just bullet out of there. Right. They're out of there before anybody really knows what just happened. Mm-hmm. So they're out of the casino, and by the time the security and everybody's making sense of it all, they've got their victim there, and they ask him, you know, what do you want to do about it? And yeah. Orlando's not interested in, in filing a report or going to the hospital right. or, you know... Um, talking to the cops i mean were his injuries that serious not at all no i was gonna say just like a it obviously was a sucker punch yeah because out of nowhere and then obviously stomping on him not that that's not bad but but he's down you know yeah he's like covering his face covering his face mm -hmm. in the fetal position trying to protect himself from kicks and stuff like that but no nothing serious and then from that point how uh what's the time between that incident happening and then now they're on the street, and that's when Tupac gets shot. So hours go by, actually. Okay. Quite a bit of time. The Suge Knight and Tupac and the rest of the death row entourage, they all go out to Suge's house. Mm-hmm. They go out to the house, and they change. Uh, Tupac had gone up to his room to change clothes, and then everybody goes over to Suge's house, and they kind of congregate over there, and then they start heading out to Suge's club, the 662, in order to uh, celebrate. Mike mm-hmm. Tyson's victory. He's going to show up. Mike Tyson's making an appearance. Tupac's supposed to sh- perform. Right. So it's going to be a big night. And another thing that's going on and as part of this is that it's very difficult to get your um, gaming and liquor license in Las Vegas, especially for somebody who's an ex-convict like Suge. Right. And so things have to go right because they can't afford for anything to go wrong because it'll disrupt this attempt that they're getting to open a club that's going to serve liquor and have gambling. If the very first night there's already, you know, gang fights or anything. Right. You know, so that was part of what was going on, which is another reason why there's some conspiracy theories out there about, well, Suge Knight told all of his security guys not to carry guns mm-hmm. as if he was setting it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the case. Um, Reggie Wright Jr., who ran Death Row Security, he said, if you guys are out here, don't carry your guns. 
if you don't have the proper license. Because mm. the last thing we need is to have people getting in trouble for having guns at the nightclub without the proper licenses, without having permits. Okay. Because that yeah. would disrupt, again, the attempts to get this thing up and running legitimately. If guys are getting arrested for guns, the city's going to be like, we're not giving you guys a license. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big, that was a huge conspiracy theory. Like, oh, the, the head of security didn't have his gun. Right, nobody that had night. nobody nobody had Nevada. <laughs> no one had a gun. Nobody had they did in California. They had their permits in California, but right. now we're in Nevada and you have to have a concealed weapons license in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So, uh they're driving down is it Flamingo Boulevard? Um yeah, Koval um in Flamingo is where the shooting actually takes place. Yeah. Which is off the strip. Right off the strip, right. And um Basically, there was like a bunch of fans that were like yelling Tupac's name, which kind of gave him away to Keefe and his crew. Right. So there had been people recognizing Tupac because the windows are down and the yeah. music's blaring. And, and T- Suge Knight, who's driving Tupac, actually got pulled over for having his music too loud. Oh, he got pulled over before this happened. Right, before it happened. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, some girls know wave and yell at Tupac and of course they say yeah come on follow us to the club and that type of thing yeah and so the entourage is becoming more active and growing and then next thing you know Keefe D and his crew are coming down the road they've just come from the club that's where they originally were looking for Tupac and Suge oh at the 662 club they were lying in wait there okay so they had gone there and after waiting for a while they realized man there's a bunch of bloods in here that are starting to recognize us mm. there's also actual police officers in the um, parking lot like this is the word this is not a good place to try to carry this out so they leave and as they're going down the road they hear some girls yelling Tupac and they just hey there he is you know he delivered himself right to us crazy and and then Keefe says that Orlando who was sitting in the back of the Cadillac uh, basically leaned over to the left. I'm sorry, what was that gentleman's name next to Orlando? DeAndre. DeAndre leaned over and shot out of the back window mm-hmm. to kill Tupac. But Keefe was the one who actually had the one and only gun in the car. So as they're driving around, Keefe had previously been in a van. There were two vehicles, a white Cadillac and a van. Mm-hmm. And guys in the van were like, just not down for this. They're like, yeah, we just, we didn't come to Vegas for this. Right. Keefe's like, oh, you're a bunch of busters. Let me out of here. And he jumps into the white Cadillac with mm. Terrence Brown, DeAndre Smith, and his nephew. Mm-hmm. So he gets in the Cadillac. He's got the gun. Now, he had gotten the gun just earlier after the Orlando Anderson had been in a fight. Keefe D went and got a gun from a guy named Zip, who was a friend of Puffy's. Right. And Zip gives him the gun. And he gets it. It winds up in the white Cadillac. Mm-hmm. They see Tupac. He's not in a position to shoot because Tupac's on the opposite side of the driver. Right. And he doesn't want to have to try to shoot across the driver because the driver needs to be able to get away. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) of course, of course. So he turns and he hands it to his nephew. And his nephew is the one who needs to handle that business anyways. He's the one that was sucker punched by Tupac. Right. So sticking to kind of the the street thing, it's it's your job. So he hands his nephew the gun. DeAndre leans over, over Dre, out the back window and just begins to... Discharge the firearm. Right. And then uh, Suge, his car, he basically tries to do like a U-turn almost. Right. So he's under fire. Yeah. And, you know, 
Tupac's getting riddled with bullets. He's getting hit hit with shrapnel. Glass mm-hmm. is flying, and he does what anybody would do: is just you try to immediately get out of the kill zone. And so he immediately turns. He hits the center divider, and tries to get away, get out yeah. from. But before that, right when the shooting was about to go down, Tupac's windows down, and Suge Knight looks over at this vehicle that's pulling up alongside them. Mm-hmm. And according to Keefe D, who's in the front seat, who's leaning forward, mm-hmm. he looks directly across the car and he locks eyes with Suge Knight. And they're old friends. They know each other. Interesting. So it's really important. Okay. And so, yeah, they had a long, they knew each other. They played football together. So Suge knew, like, that's Keefe. Immediately. Mm. He knew exactly who had done it. Mm-hmm. And so Keefe D looks at Suge. Suge looks at him. And next thing you know, Orlando's pulling the trigger. And, uh... Shug's ducking, Tupac's yeah. trying to duck and get out of the you know yeah. line of fire, and then they peel off. And then uh, there there was um, the security trailing behind Suge and Tupac, right? And he tried to go after Keefe's uh, Cadillac. Wasn't there a second car that tried to go after him? Yeah, a guy named Buntry, who was Buntry. another one of the mob pyro. Mm-hmm. Entourage, enforcer, ex-convict, gang member. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he wasn't part of the legit security, so he did have a gun. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> he didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, he tries to go after the white Cadillac. Mm-hmm. There's some girls that are trying to get out of the way also. They're in a convertible Sebring, mm-hmm. and uh, they're kind of caught up in the middle of this crossfire. And so some more bullets get exchanged. In fact, Buntry's car gets hit by a, a, a round mm-hmm. that... Orlando Anderson is shooting back. Oh, okay. So there was a secondary shooting. Mm. In fact, uh, Orlando misses on one occasion and hits a van that's in a parking lot. Oh, so there's more bullets flying after Tupac is shot. Um, but ultimately, you know, Buntry and those guys kind of like, oh, we need to put some distance between us. We're being shot at. And that's when the Cadillac just disappears into the night. Yeah. Listening to the tapes of Keefe telling the story, I am just struck at, one, he has no regard for human life. None. None. Just absolutely no regard. He was laughing. He was literally laughing. And then he said he saw the ambulance uh, coming up because, to, to, I guess, Suge's car like went up on a median, basically. Yeah. And he was watching the ambulance, and he was like, yeah, that was funnier than a motherfucker. Like... Right, so they go and they ditch the Cadillac, Mm -hmm. and they ditch the gun, according to him, Mm -hmm. and they're walking back towards their hotel, and they're at an intersection, and here comes the ambulance that presumably has Tupac and Suge in the back of it. Mm -hmm. It's coming from the area where they had just been pulled over, and he's like, yep, there they go. Yeah. And just laughing about it. Just laughing about it. Yeah, just no regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So out of this group that was in the car, Orlando is now, uh, he is now deceased. He he was killed a few years later, correct? In, uh, 1998. 1998 over some drug deal that went bad. Correct. Um, obviously, Keefe got arrested today. Um, and then uh, the driver, is he still alive? No, he died just, uh, it's probably been five years, five or six years ago. Oh, okay. He was in a um, an illegal uh, marijuana dispensary in Compton. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting inside a marijuana dispensary when it gets robbed. And during that robbery, he's shot and killed. Oh, my God. Was he ever questioned to... 
He was, and he denied any involvement. Of but course. when they did a search warrant at his house, he had a postcard from Las Vegas at the time <laughs> that oh. it took place. Um, like he was saying he wasn't in Vegas? He was saying he wasn't even there. Like, um, bro, come on. Yeah, he was denying <laughs> it, but there was clear evidence that he was he was there. And then uh, the other guy, DeAndre Smith. Smith, is he still alive? No, he okay. died in that period of time between Orlando's death in 98 and then uh, Terrence Brown's death, maybe 2017, I think, maybe. Um, mm. DeAndre Smith had died just from natural causes. He was very obese, and mm. they attributed just, uh, just health problems got him. Got it. Okay. When Keefe was telling you this, did you and um, your partner, I'm sorry, what was his name? Darren Dupree. Yeah, Dupree. Were you guys just like, what the fuck am I listening to right now? Like, or did you think it was bullshit? No, 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 no. We didn't think it was bullshit at all. Uh, We knew the conditions of the proffer are very Mm -hmm. specific. Yeah. You're not doing yourself a favor by trying to bullshit us. Got it. Was his lawyer there too? Yeah, he was sitting in, right next to him. Got it. And there's a group of uh, four or five of us. There was an FBI agent, two LAPD officers. I guess there was four of us. And then the lawyer and Keefe D. And yeah, we're just, uh, you know, inside you're like, we're getting a confession in Tupac's murder. Like this is, you know, this is in 2009. This is, you know, 13 years after the fact. Yeah. Like finally shed some light on this thing so yeah it was ex- really exciting but you don't want to show that right of course you know you don't want him to think you don't already know these things right yeah so you're just going along and trying to kind of entice him to tell you more and more and be more specific and then mm-hmm. yeah, so that's that was the process but yeah internally man i'm just like yes yeah i in the tapes i could tell you were I don't want to say coaxing his ego, but like you kind of had to be like, oh yeah, all right, well, what happened next? Like, and you were allowing him to kind of be his free self, mm-hmm. which is a heinous human being, but <laughs> regardless. His ego is huge. And so yeah. you kind of feed it. And if you feed yeah. it, then, you know. Were you worried that he could pull the wool over your eyes? Because he told the FBI that Suge wanted to get Tupac killed. Due to uh, his uh, his um, contract was almost up with death row, like he planted that misinformation. Well, that misinformation was out there. There was some, you know, people advocating for that. Mm-hmm. Um, D, when he was originally questioned, there was no leverage over him. Yeah, there was nothing to compel him to tell the truth. That's a good. Point. And of course, he's not going to confess to something um, without gaining uh, having a benefit to it. Right. Right. Uh, I listening to the I listened to him at least three times, and I just could not believe just how he talked about it with such normalcy, as if this was just like a, another day, just killed this mega superstar. Yeah. Well, not him, but Orlando obviously pulled the trigger. Now Orlando is an interesting case because whenever I saw any interaction with him on TV, I felt. That one, there wasn't much between the eyes. Okay. Just someone that was just a little bit dead inside. That's what I felt when I was watching him. And when that reporter asked him point blank, did you shoot Tupac? He almost had a smirk on his face. He's like, nah, I did not. <laughs> I was just like. It's like, no. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. As if like, what? just stop bothering me about it yeah. um, with a smirk. Yeah. So, and then Suge Knight ended up paying him. 
to testify that he did not stomp on him that night because that would have been a violation of Suge's parole. Correct. So, yeah, when when Suge's now going to face the music of his parole violation for being involved in that gang beat down, mm-hmm. he realizes, like, I've lost Tupac. Death Row is circling the drain. If I go to prison, I'm going to lose everything that I've built. Mm-hmm. And so if I have to, you know, befriend an enemy for the yeah. moment, um, I'll just offer him money. And of course, everyone has a price. Yeah. And Orlando's like, yeah, give me, give me money because I want to go start my own record label. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll come in and say that you weren't one of the guys kicking. You were actually trying to pull people off. Right. But oh, the, the video was so clear as day. The judge was just looking at him like, oh, come on, this is a joke, right? It's yeah. so clear that you're perjuring yourself right now. Did Shook really think that would work? I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> it was, hey, why not try it? Yeah. Well, Shook is kind of <laughs> notorious for doing outlandish things. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I would listen to Howard Stern. He would go on Howard Stern and make outrageous claims. I mean, he would sit there and say, Dr. Dre is gay. Yeah. And I was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, he would do just, just wild things. So I guess I'm not really surprised when it comes to Shook. He'll no. try anything. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning on how you actually got involved with this case, because I know we jumped straight to Keefe D, because sure. this news is so amazing that happened today. So this is now nine years after the original shooting that they come to you? Yeah, I, 2006. 2006. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Almost 10 years. Yeah, so it was 1997. Well, yep. yeah, so just to, qu- to clarify that. Um, it's 2006, but they're actually coming to me to work Biggie's case. Yes. Who was killed in 97. Okay. So it's nine years. Yeah, nine years. Okay. And the reason this is happening is because Valletta Wallace has brought a case against the LAPD and possibly the damages could be worth 400 million, which would have completely bankrupted the LAPD. Well, that's... That's what people say. I mean, there's just this okay. arbitrary number thrown out there. Some mm-hmm. judge makes this arbitrary number, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a likelihood going to happen. Right. That that likelihood is going to happen. So, but yeah, but the LAPD is like, well, we got to get to the bottom of this. There's this mm-hmm. looming lawsuit. You know, juries are unpredictable. You don't know how they're going to see perceive things. Mm-hmm. So let's let's reform a task force with fresh eyes and see if we can figure things out. At this point, we haven't. Yeah. gotten any answers and so that was the that th- that's the initial reinvestigation the reinvestigation and why do you think they came to you i think they wanted to go outside of robbery homicide where the case had been for years okay um and where had it had gotten stagnant mm-hmm. and they wanted to get fresh perspectives a new set of eyes so mm-hmm. to speak on it and i had a lot of experience with gangs and uh, narcotic dealing and I was in a position to do a federal investigation as opposed to a state investigation and that was always my intention and they knew that let's bring Greg in and see if we can expand this into a broad federal investigation got it um, with more resources right and so maybe those additional resources will help uncover things that we haven't been able to uncover were you very apprehensive when they came to you were you just like you want me to what (laughs) No, I mean, I was, I was, uh, it was um, honestly, uh, this doesn't sound right, but like it's a stroke to your ego. Yeah. Like you're coming to me to 
pursue something that hasn't been able to be solved yet. And mm-hmm. so that gives me a lot of pride in the fact that you um, have a lot of respect for the, my investigative abilities. Yeah. So, yeah, there was that. It was like, great, a new challenge. I would love to try to solve this. Uh, but, again, it's it's not a b- necessarily about me. It's about a team. Yeah. And so you have to build a team. And that's the first thing we did. Yeah. And then were there, like, any demands that you had in the beginning? Like, I need full autonomy. It's m- my way or the highway. No. All I wanted was that, hey, no matter what stone we unturn, whatever truth that is, yeah. that's we're going to face that. And they were like, Greg, we're going to go to wherever the wherever the truth leads. Mm-hmm. They were already confident that the Russell Poole theory was debunked. Okay. So they weren't really concerned about that. But they said, if they want to go reinvestigate that, feel free, which we did. Um, but, you know, they were, they were just, go out there and see if you can solve this. Yeah. You and the team. And my, my, my uh, the caveat was like, well, when we do this, we need the credentials of the feds, different agencies who are also saying that we've all uncovered this together. Because if it's just the LAPD saying, hey, we've exonerated ourselves, right. it's, it doesn't have the credibility when you've been accused. Yeah. You can't just kind of self, you know, exonerate yourself. If we're going to do that, we need other people mm-hmm. with bigger resumes. Right. Did you get to meet Russell Poole during this investigation? I did not. I never met him. No. I reached out to him on a couple of occasions, but he he had he wanted nothing to do with me. Did you read the book that he I don't know if he wrote it, but like he helped write or yeah. helped mm-hmm. Labyrinth. Uh, Labyrinth. Sure. And what did you feel when you were first reading it? I think if you don't fully understand the mechanisms within the mm-hmm. LAPD, mm-hmm. Um, you could you would tend to believe it. Yeah. Um, but when you are an insider and you know how things work within the LAPD, you can read between the lines. Do you think it was a breeding ground for Russell to find this conspiracy theory? I mean, because think about it. It's 1996, 1997. Mm-hmm. This is Rodney King thing happened in 91. Mm-hmm. So that's not a lot of time with race relations and just basically... Uh, you know, the LAPD has not been squeaky clean. Yeah. I mean, no police um, department department ever has been, really. Right. Um, and then, of course, L.A. is a huge city. It's always in the news. I mean, you can never get away from the scrutiny. Right. So I do feel it was a bit of a breeding ground for someone like Russell Poole, who was considered such a straight arrow, mm-hmm. to be like, oh, wow, there might be something here, and then it just spirals out of control. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a breeding ground for the public who already yes. has a mistrust of the police. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. And also, we didn't do things in the 90s that we do now. I mean, there's so much science and methodical um, methodology that's put to crime scenes now. Right. And, you know, to be able to kind of sift through the facts. I mean, I feel in the 90s, we were just kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> well, <laughs> At least to the public's eyes. Yeah. And the technology's changed everything. I mean, yep. just about everything now is on mm-hmm. video. You know, there's yep. so much just contained in a person's cell phone and social media and all of these different things that we didn't re- really have to rely on back then. Right. Um, so much of what we can do today is benefited law enforcement. But at the same time, back then, they were still capable of conducting very thorough, comprehensive, trustworthy investigations. Yeah. Um, And then you had to get all these files that were 
actually in internal affairs. And they were very slow to give you the files. Why was that? Because everything was getting digitized. You know, oh. you had 97 binders of mm -hmm. four-inch binders. There's just this huge volume of material. Yeah. And because of the lawsuit, everything needs to be digitized so things can go into discovery. And it's there's a lot of scrutiny over mm. what can and can't go into a file because of police officers' personal rights. Um, there's things, when it comes to internal affairs records, um, those things have to be looked through with a fine-tooth comb and adhere to different laws. How long did it take you to go through the stuff until you found like your first kind of like clue of where you should start? Well, we knew the prevailing theory, mm -hmm. which was the Russell Poole theory. We also knew the Southside Crip theory. Mm -hmm. um, so there was three prevailing theories. And we just said, well, we're going to jump into all of them. First of all, we got to get ourselves familiar with this massive amount of investigative material that preceded us. Yeah. So we have to get familiar with that. And then we start to have to figure out what's everybody's place here. We got an ATF agent. Anything gun related is going to the ATF. Drugs, we got the DEA. Anything drug related yeah. is going to go here. So, oh, guys with homicide experience, we're going to do the homicides here. So we just kind of tried to um, divide things up into these manageable areas. Mm -hmm. And everybody had their area of responsibility. And the plan was that the task force would work cohesively for mm -hmm. everybody to contribute. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then w within the task force, how many total were there of you? It's at one point, 16. Oh, wow. Okay. Because mm -hmm. like on the show, it made it seem like it was just four of you. That's uh, because the, the network's <laughs> not going to have 16 different characters. Right. Yeah, so That's no. not in the budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And plus, it, it makes it difficult to tell a story when you've got so many different people. Sure, sure. Interacting, so. And then, um, was it like the Netflix show? Like, was there an actual tension between the different members of the group? Absolutely. Oh, really? Okay. And w why was it? Was it was it a race thing, or was it just m just how your method of how you treat an investigation, how you attack it? Yeah, I mean, it 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 could be considered a race thing in in one small aspect there was mm -hmm. my partner darren dupree african-american yeah he was very close with another african-american guy and that african-american became disgruntled because me and dupree were working so well together and spending a lot of time together and he had approached dupree and he says what the fuck are you hanging out with that white boy all the time for and mm -hmm. so Sounds like his problem yeah it was his problem yeah um and it came it was it was his own undoing because he wasn't really actively involved in the case mm -hmm. Um, and so there were, there were little issues that arose, yeah. um, most of the guys are alpha males and yeah. people don't like to be told what to do. So <laughs> it's a, it's a balancing act to, sure. to all work together, but we all had the same objective. Right. And, and when you got this case, were you, when it first happened, when the murder first happened, were you already at the LAPD? Yeah. Okay, so you're there, and what did you know about the case What before, like, when it first happened? Nothing really. Did you even, like, like rap music? Did you? Oh, nothing. Yeah, I didn't listen to rap music. Yeah. I wasn't in any way familiar with the hip-hop okay. you know, um, music genre. I just didn't know anything about it, really. That's actually probably a really good thing to have someone like you come onto the investigation, because I believe if you like them so much it would kind of change maybe your methodologies. You might have, like, confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the fact that you're like, well, I don't really even like rap music or know who they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw you them. stuck to the facts. They were, they were murder victims. Yes. You know, it, it, at this point in time, it's Biggie's a murder victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's our responsibility. And so, you know, like any other murder victim, we have an obligation to go out and try to solve it. I didn't care whether or not he had a background. I didn't care if I liked the music. I didn't care about any of that, nor should we. Yeah. But kind of a little bit contrary to your point, I didn't understand the culture the way I needed to because I'm going to miss out on some things. Sure. That's why, you know, I joined at the hip with Darren. Darren's African-American. He's Mm -hmm. from South Central L.A. He does listen to this music. Mm -hmm. He works these nightclubs and sees these people coming and going. He's going to understand culturally things that I don't and appreciate them and be able to help me understand um, any barriers that might be in the way. Yeah, no, that's a perfect pairing, I would think. You d- you would definitely need that because yeah. you would miss things. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, did you ever get to meet uh, Voletta Wallace? I did. You did? Mm-hmm. And was that right when you started or was it after? It was after because mm-hmm. there was an issue... It was an unfortunate issue that when she's got a lawsuit against the city, um, it's we're prohibited from going and having personal contact with her. Yeah. Because then, and not that she would do this, but the fear is that she says, oh, they came, they came to try to coerce me. Mm-hmm. They came to try to talk me into dropping the charges. Yeah. And so it becomes a conflict of interest. And so we were, we were precluded from going and talking to her at that time. Um, and, of course, we knew that she didn't know anything about the murder. Right. Um, but her son, we would like to have been able to empathize with her and let her know that we're truly trying to figure this out. But we couldn't at that time because of the lawsuit. Right, right. And then when you got to meet with her, does does she still believe LAPD could have been involved? Or is she a little bit more on your side now with the facts? Or the science that was brought to the case? It's a, gr- it's a really a great question, and I can't speak for her. Right. Um, obviously, she believed in the, the, the corruption conspiracy to begin with because she actually filed the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I think that there were some lawyers in her ear convincing her that this is all true because they could see this would lead to really deep pockets. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about the truth. It's about if we can show enough evidence to support the fact that they will settle with us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just these games that they play in order to um, it not, not necessarily pursue justice, but just get huge settlements. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the lawyers really truly ever believed in what they were trying to advocate for, in my opinion. However, when I met with Valletta and I said, listen, um, you've spent a lot of time and money and energy chasing these false leads mm-hmm. you know this has all been kicked out of court several times it's now been dismissed um you should be seeing that maybe we're barking up the wrong tree here mm-hmm. here's the theory that we believe mm-hmm. and there's a good reason to believe this to be true and she said well i believe that you put everything you've written in your book mm-hmm. i believe is what she told me directly oh so she read your book yes that's awesome okay and she says uh but where she stands today, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. You know, I think that she's just very disappointed. Yeah. As, uh, as she ought be. Right. But, um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, she's, she's aside from Biggie, I mean, she's the next most important victim in this story. Absolutely. The mother's really. And I love that you dedicated your book mm-hmm. to both moms. 
And because that, they really are. They're the next victims here. They never got closure. And I believe um, Tupac's mom has passed away now. Correct. So she never got that closure. Or maybe she, maybe deep in her heart, she felt what was true. But I, th- I think, so she's a different character. Yeah. In the sense that she really knows the streets in a different type of way. Yeah, she was a Black Panther. Yeah. Yeah. And so does that lead her to believe that there was never really... a a feasible corruption government component to the Tupac murder. Nobody right. really ever believed anything other than it was some type of retaliation for mm-hmm. gang activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but with her understanding the streets and how they probably work, even though she was not in LA, but you know, these other cities, she probably had a much more keener insight and yes. to, Hey, this is what happens when, I feel she was more accepting of the situation because she comes from that lifestyle mm-hmm. versus Valletta did not. Mm-hmm. So for her, this is like an absolute injustice. Not that Tupac's mom did not feel that way, right. but she just had that, you know, she was kind of from the underbelly. Right. And so absolutely, I, I, yeah. I agree with that. So when you start going through this, obviously – there's this kind of looming cloud over you. Okay, LAPD might be involved, but then you quickly realize that there's not much connection. What made you, what was the first thing you, what was the first piece of evidence? They were just like, there is no connection that there are a bunch of cops Mm -hmm. dealing, uh, you know, part of this. Right. Well, first we started to talk to the people at death row, all the people that had worked there, including Mm -hmm. all the security people. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows David Mack. Not a single person can say, I've seen that guy around. We had one person say that, but we already, we know we debunked the, the, that truth. Okay. Because there's no way for that to be true where other people didn't already see the same thing or know the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the beginning of it all. Um, we knew the, the whole story with David Mack and Shaheed Muhammad. It was all just getting blown out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Shaheed Muhammad is actually just a real estate agent who went to college with David Mack. And when David Mack robbed a bank and he needs somebody to take care of his family, there's 700 and something thousand dollars buried somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he needs to be able to access that to take care of his family. So he turns to a guy that is outside of the gangs, outside of the LAPD, outside of law enforcement. It's a person he can actually trust because that individual cares about his wife and his kids. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, and so that is the connection between Shahid and David Mack. But because of this whole nature nation of Islam component, mm-hmm. he's the convenient scapegoat now to connect him to Suge Knight. Suge Knight doesn't know Shaheed Muhammad. Yeah. Nor does David Mack know Suge Knight. None of these things are established. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it all leads to this very, you know, compelling conspiracy theory that um, you know, if true, would be a better story. It's salacious, it's bigger, it's mm-hmm. broader, it's not just simple. Do you think Eugene Deal, which was uh, Puffy's security guard that night at the Peterson right. when, when Biggie died, him claiming that he saw this guy, uh, you know, that looked like he was part of the Nation of Islam right. uh, with the blue suit, blue bow tie. Um, do you feel he just believes because he saw this person that has to be the one in the sense, but but there's no way to really connect it, such as um, 
there isn't a mirror Muhammad, but doesn't mean it's that person that he saw in the parking garage that night. Correct. He saw yeah. a guy who in wearing the garb yeah. of the, you know, the bow tie and the Nation of Islam, but there were there were several of them there. The Nation of Islam were doing security at the hotel where Biggie was staying. Uh, the hotel the Nation of Islam were being mm-hmm. um, asked to do security at the Shrine Auditorium where the award show was going on. There was the Nation of Islam was very much involved in providing security to black celebrities in Los Angeles. It's not un- unusual for them to be present yeah. at these different public events. But then someone said at the hospital, oh, it was that Muslim guy, that Muslim guy did it. Was that just, why was that being pushed? Just because Eugene is pushing this narrative? I believe so. I don't know what took place at the hospital, but Mm -hmm. Little C's Mm -hmm. um, is the only actual witnesses, and he gets a glimpse of somebody. Okay. But keep in mind, his description of this individual doesn't match the description that Gene Deal is 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 coming. Completely different color clothing oh okay right and of course you know as as you know it's witness observations can be very misleading Mm -hmm, people see different things lighting takes a huge role in this that's why one person thought it was a black impala Mm -hmm. all of the best information is that it was a green impala but because of different lighting at night a dark colored car can appear black Mm -hmm. little sees who's the closest person to witness the vehicle driving by, says, I'm absolutely positive it was green. Well, the whole Mm. theory about David Mack being involved was based largely on the fact that he had a black Impala. But the best witness you have is saying it's absolutely positively green. Got it. Right? And then other people are saying, oh, it looks kind of bluish silver. And other people are saying, yeah, maybe purple. And one bus driver who's looking in his rearview mirror is seeing a vehicle in his side view mirror, fleeing down the street, and he thinks it's black. Mm-hmm. Well, any dark color car under those circumstances will appear black. Yeah, definitely. So these are the conflicting perspectives mm-hmm. that the police have to try to figure out. Was it black? Was it green? Was it purple? And not to mention, everyone and their mother had an Impala in the 90s. Everybody. <laughs> Especially in the hip-hop culture. Oh, man, that was <laughs> the most popular car there was. Yeah. I mean, even here in Florida, it was yeah. just, it, it was constant. There were so many of them. But when May, when David Mack was in jail, he did get the visitor where they wrote, he wrote Amir Muhammad. And then he changed the last four of his social. And they used that in the documentary in HBO that, oh, he was trying to hide himself. But then in your 2015 documentary, you're like, no, he put his real name. Real address, real date of birth. So real driver's license. Real driver's license. So what was he actually trying to hide? Exactly. Do you think the last of his social, do you think that was just the typical like 90s mentality? Like, oh, you can't have my social. He's a real estate agent. He understands fraud. Okay. And he knows that people have access to that document. It's a public document when you sign in to go to the jail. Mm-hmm. Many people can, can see that and, and take yeah. your social security number. So he's just thinking, well, I don't mind giving him my driver's license because you can't really conduct fraud with that. I don't mind giving my birth date or, or my, my Muslim yeah. name. Um, but I'm not going to give them my full social security number. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very practical. And there's nothing suspicious about that. Yeah. And then it came to find out the poor guy like almost got his life ruined because it everyone thought he was the killer. Absolutely. And he was just a real estate agent. He's a real estate agent, but he's connected to a bank robber. Yeah. He is David Mack's friend. Yeah. And David Mack did rob a bank and there was money missing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this guy enters the picture. 
Yeah. So, yeah, there's some suspicious things going on. But as far as him being anywhere near the auditorium or in anywhere, you know, um, there's just nothing to support that theory. There was whatsoever. nothing to support he was at the Peterson no, that he, night. He's just conveniently Muslim. Mm-hmm. He's not a nation of Islam Muslim. That's a different sect, so to speak. Yeah. Right? He's not driving around and conducting himself as a, mm-hmm. the military wing of the nation of Islam. And where's David Mack now? Is he still in prison or is he out? He's out. He's been out for years. He's out and no one. And basically they have just, we're not going to talk to him anymore. There's nothing else to really try to get from him at this point. Well, he, he did his time. Yeah. And he's. we already know that he had nothing to do with Biggie's murder. So what's yeah. to talk about? Yeah. So the night um, during Biggie's murder, do you feel, yes, they got Biggie um, cause he was the second car cause the, his first car with Puffy mm-hmm. went through the light. Eugene deal and Puffy went through the light in that suburban. Correct. And then Puffy with his driver, little C's and Biggie with his driver. Big, yeah. I'm sorry. Biggie with his driver, little C's stop at the light. Correct. And that's when the Impala comes up, shoots him it's, and it's, pulls off. It's almost a, a, a reenactment of Mm -hmm. Tupac shooting. Do you feel he was supposed to also get puffy too? Well, if, if that's, if, if so, we don't have any information to support that. Got it. We have no information to support that. When the confessor and that murder comes forward, she doesn't say anything about puffy being a target. Got it. She says it was Biggie. So it was like a star for a star. The star for a star, but also complicating that was the perception that Suge Knight had because after Tupac was shot in Las Vegas, rumors started to swirl mm-hmm. that Biggie had been in Vegas, Biggie had hired the Southside Crips, mm-hmm. Biggie had provided the murder weapon. And so this street rumors lead Suge to believe that Biggie set that up. Biggie was the one who... Oh, not Puff, just Biggie. Biggie. Interesting. Which led to this whole newspaper article saying Biggie was there. They had to retract it and apologize. But Mm. this was currently the rumor on the street. So, you know, when when Suge looks over and he sees Keefe D pull up Mm -hmm. and then Tupac gets shot, he hears that Puffy had hired those. I'm sorry, Biggie had been in Vegas and provided the gun and hired the Southside Crips. Got it. That's why he gets targeted. That was his target. Do you feel so... After you you interview this witness who was one of Suge Knight's basically baby mamas, mm-hmm. and you put together this confession letter, Correct. which was fake, mm-hmm. of the person that you believe actually perpetrated the murder, this guy. Um, Pucci, Wardell Faust. Yeah, Wardell Faust Pucci. She's reading this letter, mm-hmm. and she's like, everything he put here is true. Correct. And so we had redacted certain things in the letter to make it look like we were hiding information. So she didn't know what we did and didn't know. Mm -hmm. So we're using some kind of like (laughs) uh, psychological bluff. Yeah, yeah. And um, But she reads it, and we already had our suspicions and our theories, and we put it into action. She believed it was a legitimate confession letter written by Pucci. And so she knows that the the jig's up and that she's been identified. And she says, yeah, this is pretty much what happened. And I love that you dated it April 1st. (laughs) I don't think she noticed that. (laughs) What 
what made you come to that decision? Because you've met her already. She seems like she's willing to work with you. Why did you feel you have to do that one step further? Because we knew that it was, she's this frightened individual. Mm -hmm. She's scared um, about the ramifications of her cooperation. Right. She's stuck in between a rock and a hard place, much like Keefe D. With Keefe D, we had a, a lifelong drug case over his head. With her, we had just more white-collar fraud things. Um, but nonetheless, it would have required her going to jail and losing her kids. Yeah. So that was her. Her back was up against the wall. And so now she had a decision, tell the truth and potentially betray Suge or lose the kids. So she agrees to sit down, and we give her this confession later because we want her to feel this is often a technique in law enforcement. If you think somebody else has already opened the door, mm-hmm. um, it's easier for you to then say, yeah, that's true, mm-hmm. as opposed to being the first one to open the door. So you're just walking through a door that's already been opened. Right. And so these are some of the tactics that we would use in order to get her comfortable enough to speak honestly with us. Because she was, I mm-hmm. mean, there's just snot rags. It was just a mess. Okay. And so she's just crying and just so afraid. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we've got to comfort her. We've got to convince her that. I don't blame her. Suge is a scary person. Yeah. So I, I can imagine, um, I could maybe imagine 10% of her fear. Um, I'll tell you what I thought when I first read that part. I was like, okay, that's an interesting tactic. But now, obviously, I'm a little, I'm, I'm very involved with reading your book and all the different things. So the first thing that hit my mind was, what if Teresa says yes this is all true simply because Poochie's dead now and she has nothing to lose at this point just to kind of get you off her back do you think that is possible yeah that's that's possible okay um but you know we're all trained investigators who've been doing these interrogations for years and um we just get a sense that yeah I, I think she's being honest she's putting herself and then she corroborates some things okay that she wouldn't have known we knew like her visits to the jail not just her visits to the jail to, to visit Suge, but her visits to the jail under the um, premise that she's a legal aid mm. with Suge's attorney, David Kenner. This allows her to go into the attorney-client-privileged area of the jail and have discussions that can't be monitored. So right. this, is, this sets up an uh, opportunity or an environment where Suge can have these conversations without fear of anybody hearing them. And so when we are, you know, we're aware of the fact that she's gone there and presented herself as a legal aid. And this is what she tells us. Right. So she's already telling us things that she's, that are being corroborated. Did you have the logs to back that up for her going to the jail? Yes. Yeah. And then she presented herself as like what, a paralegal basically or a legal assistant? Correct. Okay. And then at that point, no one can be in the room when she's talking to Suge. Right. Because she's with the attorney. Mm Mm-hmm. And according to her, David, you know, and this was not unusual for Mr. Kenner, is that he knows if Suge has to talk private matters with somebody else, mm-hmm. he's going to kind of excuse himself. And so he might go to the end of the table, turn a blind eye, mm-hmm. you know, make a phone call, right. allow them to talk, and then he'll re-engage. So he basically tells Teresa, obviously I know this is not her real name, her real name is protected, um, you know, this is what I want Poochie to do. Mm-hmm. And Poochie is known for doing this. He's like basically. He's already wanted for murder. He's already wanted for murder. So, th- and he's done things like this for Suge in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. So this this makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. 
And then obviously he does what he does. He kills Biggie at the Peterson. Do you think he acted alone or is there a possibility he was working with someone else to make this happen? It's a possibility he acted alone, but the probability of somebody else being involved is very, very high. Is there any suspects? There is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe there was a guy dressed in a Nation of Islam suit mm-hmm. who was very close to Suge. I have photographs of him and Suge. Mm-hmm. He was very close, and he'd done enforcement work for Suge in the past. I think he was the lookout. I think he was the spotter. I think he was the guy that told Pucci, hey, they're coming out now. Biggie's in the right front seat of the second Suburban. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're, they're pulling out. I think that Pucci had somebody telling him exactly where Biggie was at. Is this person still alive? No. No, he's passed. What was his name? His, uh, I prefer not to say that, okay. um, but he uh, he died just recently. Just recently, okay. Like within the past year. And was he like in the files? Like did Russell Poole see him? He was already him? in our files. Okay. Um, yeah, under our anti-terrorist division, they kept mm-hmm. files of people that they believed that were in the Nation of Islam who were known hitmen. Mm. His name was in there. Got it. Poole would have known that. Okay. So, I mean, there's, though Poole, you've kind of debunked that the LAPD was involved in covering it up, but Poole was right that Suge was the one that put the hit out on Biggie. That's correct. Yeah, so he was right in that regard. He was just wrong about who that person ended up being. Correct. Yeah. So that that, that is unfortunate. Do you think... Um, and and Russell um, Russell Poole died basically talking about the case. Uh, where was that? Las Vegas PD or, or somewhere around he there? He was with the sheriffs in L.A. Oh, um, in LA. He went there because he was he, he was presenting a new theory. Mm. Um, he'd modified his original position, and then he wanted to go and see if the Los um, Angeles Sheriff's Department, who was handling Suge's current murder case, the mm-hmm. unrelated murder case that he's now in prison for, he thought, well, listen, why don't you guys approach Suge, tell him you'll give him some consideration on his current case if he'll tell you what happened. And they're like, we're not going to negotiate with him. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Just not, we're not interested in doing that. And um, he just suffers a massive heart attack right there in that meeting and dies. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yeah, and Suge is, he, he's impossible to rely on. Absolutely impossible. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he's not, even when the reporter asked him, they're like, um, if you knew who killed Tupac, would you tell us? He's like, absolutely not. You know, and he had that pause there, and he's like, it's not I my don't. my job to solve murders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just, uh, he's such a menace to absolutely. society. <laughs> um, honestly, 28 years is not long enough. Um, he needs to stay longer. So you're making amazing feats in this investigation. I mean, you've literally solved the Tupac murder. You brought it down to the wire, um, and then hopefully we can finalize this after today. We're hoping it's very close. And then you, you, you're you getting very close. You basically solved Biggie's murder. Right. Even though there might be a few other people involved. And then they take you off the case. Yeah, well, the, the process was uh, we get the confession of Teresa Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know Poochie's dead. Uh, Teresa Swan actually does get immunity, unlike mm-hmm. QVD, who just had a proper session. Yeah. And now it's last man standing is Suge. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be a very likely prosecution where we're going to get a baby mama to testify um, who has a history of perjury herself. She had like five or six different California identifications, driver's mm-hmm. licenses. Right. 
every time you go and get a new driver's license, you sign under penalty of, perju- penalty of perjury that you've never gotten a driver's license in a different name. Right. So that you've got this document showing that she's sworn, you know. And yeah. so if you were to put her on the stand in court, the first thing a defense attorney would say is like, do you lie? Do you lie a lot? <laughs> yeah, she's fucked. She's fucked. Yeah. And you can't hang Suge Knight based on her testimony, and that's the only testimony we have. Right, right. Um, how did you feel when they came to you and they're like, Greg, we have to take you off the force due to this technicality mm-hmm. from internal affairs. I shattered. Shattered, I just yeah. just shattered. I just couldn't believe it. And you were, what, three years into this? Three years into it, yeah. And we had just gotten these monumental confessions. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, the I get the LAPD. I understand the mechanisms that are in play and why they have to do these things at times. But when it's you on yeah. the receiving end of false allegations. Yeah. Um, and it's personal. Absolutely. And it affects you personally. But I understand why it's necessary. I know that we have to sometimes investigate things and put somebody on the bench for a while until we know whether the claim is true or not. Right. You know, I'm dealing with this really high-profile case, and what if those allegations are true? Now I've tainted this whole other case. Right. So I get it, but it's still, it's crushing. But it's the aftermath, the fact that they put on a detective that basically, lack of a better term, just has absolute shortcomings. Well, Dupree um, doesn't. He's He becomes the stand-in. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dupree, uh, at that time, was a, he wasn't a senior detective. He wasn't a um, supervisory detective. Yeah. So even though he was equipped to do the job, mm-hmm. um, I think the LAPD was like, hey, we have gotten the lawsuit dismissed. Yeah. There's no more threat of that looming over our head. Mm-hmm. The case is unprosecutable because you've got a witness that you can't really put on the stand. How much more time and money are we going to devote towards this? And so, practically speaking, they're like, let's disband this big task force. Everybody go back to work. We all have active homicides that need to be worked just as, you know, importantly as this. So, all these things came into play, mm-hmm. and uh, the case essentially was, is set aside. But wasn't there another detective they brought on to oversee a few things after you left? There was another guy that was kind of brought in as a supervisory detective but mm-hmm. he had no background with the case and i don't right. think he had any real interest in it and, and there wasn't really really anywhere to go mm-hmm. unless you're going to try to get up on wiretaps with suge at this time of course suge is still out at that time suge was still out right um so yeah there were still work to be done but i also think that they were looking at it maybe a little dif- different than i was yeah because because in, in the book you you felt like you had a moment you're like damn was Russell, Russell Poole right and then you were also saying like is it just the sheer incompetence of the LAPD or the people working within there they're not willing to follow up not willing to go through to the end uh, do you I feel your stance has changed since you wrote that well my stance has softened it's changed okay. quite a bit i mean okay. back when it's personal it's it's you know, you have a little bit more of a knee-jerk reaction. Sure. And it's a little, you get more defensive. Mm-hmm. Time's gone on. I'm a, a little bit more practical about it now. And uh, I, I I don't, I know Russell Poole was never right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the LAPD is an imperfect system. It doesn't always work the way we want it to work. Sure. As does any large corporation. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's disappointing. Um, but, you know, there's not this, there's not this big dark secret that's buried somewhere. Right. Right. And you're, you're more at peace at it, especially with what came to light today. Yeah. You I know, am. So I'm it's not like your work went. Yeah. I'm um, disappointed that we didn't give Valletta more. Yeah. She deserved more. Definitely. Definitely. Um, when it came to, when you're writing in the book, when it came down to write the book, what made you say, you know, I need to write all this down? Was it a bit of a knee-jerk reaction? Was it a little bit of your bruised ego? Was it just absolutely wanting justice? Was it all three? It's all of them. Yeah. It's all of those things combined. Yeah. I, I realized that if somebody didn't step out and tell the story, then the public was never going to know what we discovered during our investigation. Yeah. So I thought that there's a responsibility to inform the public. And it's also, you're responsible for clearing up things that are, are, are advocating for f- false accusations. Yeah. You want to clear people's names that are being falsely accused. You want to tell people what you've discovered. And I was done at that point in my career. I was like, I just, I, I've, I've ran the gamut of everything I wanted to do in my career. Um, and I felt myself just getting a little bit, um, probably just a little caustic. Maybe yeah. that I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, I was just done at that point in time. Yeah. And I left, and I'm glad I did. I'd never looked back. I had a great career, mm-hmm. but there was greener grass on the other side of the horizon. How'd your family feel when you said you wanted to write the book? Well, my wife was really interested. Um, she said, well, you're you're going to retire? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to retire. You're going to mm-hmm. walk away from the drop money because we have this extension, this retired program. Okay. We make a lot of money by staying on five years longer than your retirement mm-hmm. um, when you qualify for your retirement. You stay there. They entice you. Um, and it's quite a bit of money. Yeah. Um, and I said, oh, it's, it's not worth it. Um, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've got a good pension. Yeah. Um, and I'm ready to go. And she said, Are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And then this opportunity to write the book and you don't know where that's going to go right and i had a really great publishing deal with random house Uh, we sent them the manuscript they were super excited about it i got a huge advance Mm -hmm. and then once we delivered them the final thing and it went through legal vetting random house's lawyers were like uh you're going to make accusations against puffy combs (laughs) Uh, yes. No, thank you. He's very litigious. Mm. We're a New York publishing company. His office is right across the street. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, no, we don't want to spend our time and money defending the allegations because it's not going to make them, you know, you're only going to make so much money. So it's just not in our best interest. So they gave us back the manuscript, and uh, I kept the advance. And I said, well, hell with it. I'll just self-publish it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so. And then that led to a guy contacting me saying, let's make a documentary. Mm-hmm. And then that led to the Netflix series. And so it took on its own journey. Yeah. Um, did you, have you ever received anything from Puffy's team? No, I know that he'd been asked and he just says it's all nonsense. You know, he just deflects it. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Which is it's probably the right thing to do. That's the smartest thing to do. I mean, I would love to see him sit down and, be transparent and forthright. Right. Um, but I don't think his lawyers would ever advise him to do that. I do have a question about Keefe D. 
And Puffy. When when he was going to go to, well, when he did go to New York to try to meet up with Zip, to try to get him to talk about giving him the murder weapon that night and the payment, and, and which did not transpire to anything because Zip was, uh, I think he had a cancer, right? Um, and basically he just didn't want to be part of that life. Um, Keefe said to you in the tapes or, or, he, or in the book you said, oh, I'll just go up to Puff's place and just ask him for it. Yeah. Again, this is... Just that. Do you think that was just his ego talking? Totally. Totally. There's so no you way would have never got, allow that. And he had never gotten through the front door. That's a good point, too. Yeah, years <laughs> had gone by. You know, Keefe had already come and gone from prison. Puffy's moved on. I mean, there was no, he would have never gotten through the front door. Of course, in his mind, he, he could have because he's Keefe D. Right. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's, but Zip was approachable. He's still a street hustler. He's still active. Mm-hmm. He's got his own nightclub. Puffy, I'm sorry, uh, QVD can just walk in there and right. try to resurrect their relationship, which is what he did. Right. Um, yeah, so. But what about the money? So there's claims that Zip has the money or that he used it to open a nightclub, or is there any truth to that, you think? We don't have any corroborating evidence, but I believe it I believe it to be true. QVD said that, that uh, money was good. And if you know the character of Zip, yep. it would be just like him. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's the intermediary, I'm sorry, the intermediary between Keefe D and Puffy is right. Zip. Yes. And so any transaction would go through him. Mm. And so I do believe that Puffy's like, man, I, I just had no intention of that happening. But now that it did and I said what I said, I better deal with these guys. Right. And just get, I don't want to have the problems with them. I know what they're capable of doing. Right. <laughs> so I think that he probably... Um, forwarded some money, but Zip's like, well, I'm not giving this to him. Now, he's related to Zip, right? There's some familial tie? No. So, Zip was Biggie's godfather. Oh, okay, that's what it was. But Zip and Puffy's dad were super close friends. I see. Okay. So, there's that, like... It's like, that's my cousin. Yeah. It's not really... Not blood-related, right? Got it. Yeah, but it's still... It's an inner circle. Do you think Puffy is ever worried that Zip did not forward his portion on to Keefe? Like, do you think that keeps him up at night? Well, he has the assurance of knowing, like, yo, Keefe, hold on. I gave that to Zip. I gave him That's the a good money, point. Right? So go deal with him. He stole your money. Mm-hmm. Do you think Puff is worried now that Keefe is arrested? I think Puffy probably is very curious about it mm-hmm. but i think he also knows that he's invincible at this point insofar as this case goes yeah. yeah and and no one probably he's never been questioned correct well there's been attempts mm-hmm. um but you know he 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 stands behind his lawyers and his lawyers protect him and yeah you know and so no he's he's been he's been interviewed but he's never been forthright or willing to answer all questions I don't know if we would ever get anything out of Puff with this murder. But, you know, there are rumors about Puff Daddy and basically how he treated his stars that, like, lived with him at the time. Like, there's rumors. Thing. I always wonder, like, maybe this won't get him, but something else possibly would. Well, look at Suge Knight. Yep, exactly. You know, Suge Knight shows up, you know, at a, a filming location 
gets into a confrontation, next thing you know, he's in prison for 28 years. Yeah. Exactly. Had nothing to do with Biggie's murder, right? But something else caught up with him. So well, Suge for sure. He's yeah. just <laughs> I don't know. Karma's Karma's a and the fact that his name Suge comes from the name Sugar Bear. I died laughing when I read that section, and I died laughing at all the monikers. Really, <laughs> some of them are pretty good. Hen, a buntry zip. Oh, oh my God, there was just so buntry was country, right? But they can't use the C as a blood. Oh right, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those really made me laugh. I was just like, there's so many. And I had to like stop and write down every character that you introduced. I was like, oh my God, there's another one. You can make a rap song out of it. (laughs) It'd be fun. Try to get them all the rhyme. So in the documentary, uh, the one on HBO, it shows you going into your attic and looking at all the files. Are these actually at your house? Um, They used to be. I put them in a storage unit because I... I don't want them in my house anymore, but yeah. You were allowed to take these? No, it wasn't. I wasn't disallowed. Okay. So um, what happens is as an investigator, I I have the right to maintain copies of my own work. I got it. Okay. But this was not all my work. But nonetheless, what I didn't take anything that I didn't leave behind. It's not like I stole anything. All I did was duplicate things. So Mm -hmm. the LAPD has all of their original material as does any other agency that was involved in this case. It. Everyone has their original. Case. I have copies of the investigative files. Right. And there was no law or procedure or practice or policy mm-hmm. that precluded me from keeping those. Right. So you don't have it in like a bathroom behind a gold toilet, like a Marlog. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, just in the, yeah. you know, sometimes how they cut shots. I was just like, wait, is that really, he kept everything up there? I, w- I just wasn't sure how that worked. But the amount of information you have in your book, I was... Wondering, you obviously had to go back and check. Yeah, you have to. And you're not going to convince a publisher. You have to be able to substantiate the claims that you're making in a a book. So you have to show them that they're not going to get themselves in trouble Mm -hmm. um, because it's all, you know, documented in police files. Right. And how long did it take you to write the book? Well, that's, um, I had a Mm ghostwriter, a really great guy who, um, who helped me write it. So I would kind of tell him the ins and the outs and the details, and then he would put it into these wonderful narrative forms. And then when Random House decided not to publish, he said, hey, Greg, I can't afford to potentially be sued as an independent self-publishing you know, person. I said, well, it's up to you. If you want to take your name off of it, that's your mm-hmm. prerogative. Um, but you don't know. Maybe this is going to lead somewhere, and it did. Definitely. It, he had... Uh, he had Decided not to attach himself to it. Got it. So everyone's afraid of Puffy and his litigious ways. Yeah. Yeah. But was that the main one he was afraid of or what? just in general? Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Would you ever consider doing an audible of your book? I would. I'm not very tech savvy, so I don't really know. I would. It's I would literally s- just this. <laughs> okay. I would certainly allow someone else to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you can actually have an actor hired for it if okay. you don't want it to be your own voice for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have to be updated, obviously. There needs to be a revision in Definitely. order to tell all of the new developments. Yeah. Yeah. Def- and then are you and uh, are you and Dupree still friends? I talked to him today. That's amazing. Yeah, he's like a brother to me. And is he still active at the LAPD? For a very short period longer. Okay, so he's, he's retired now. Very, yeah, I think he has 40 more days or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so I'm he's probably jumping up and down today yeah, for... Uh, I guarantee he's got a line of cigars and vodka bottles 
all just waiting for him. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, during your investigation, what was the one thing that just jumped out at you that, like, to this day, like, kind of shook you to your core when you found out? Hmm. Well, there within this investigation? Yeah. So this is, there's this really, and this is the nature of these investigations sometimes. Things are so odd, you can't make them up. Yeah. Just weird. We had mentioned this guy, Stutterbox. Yeah, Stutterbox. Right, who is an individual who stumbles into our investigation, mm-hmm. tells us he knows a bunch of stuff that can help us. Well, uh, as we do in our investigation of Stutterbox, and he is, con- you know, he's got a personal connection to, um, to uh, um, the leader of the Nation of Islam. I'm drawing mm-hmm. a blank, Tony right. Muhammad or something like that. Yeah. Anyways, like this really direct connection to the Nation of Islam. His name is Stutterbox. But when we be be when we begin to do a kind of cursory investigation of him, I find that he has identification in the name of Amir Muhammad. That part of the book, I was like, stop. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, what is what is happening here? What right. strange twist in the universe is taking place where a guy that we now have as an informant who's connected to the Nation of Islam, has the name Amir Muhammad on one of his driver's licenses. And we're like, are we getting played here? And But it does. It just is one of these strange coincidences. Why do you think he, he came in? Like, what do you think his motive was? Was it to throw you off? Or no, no. He had a bunch of issues with his gang, and he was trying to hope that that by cooperating with us, we would protect him from the threats that he was receiving from his own gang. Oh, okay. So he was trying to extort Shaquille O'Neal, and he was doing all these horrible things. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so, but he got himself in hot water. The gangs were out to get him. His gang was out to get him. Uh-huh. And so he came running, and he's hoping that law enforcement would help him. But, of course, we're, okay, well, if what do you have to offer us? Right. <laughs> so he begins to give us information that he either believes or he feels that um, will help us in our pursuit. How long did he waste your guys' time? A long time. Like six months? Probably. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a nightmare. I would have been so exhausted after that. I was pissed. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, I have no pro- that's why I have no problem throwing him under the bus. Because yeah. he wasted our time and he was dishonest. And that's all we ever ask of our informants. Don't fuck us over. Did he ever get any protection f- at all? Like, did he get any part of that agreement or no? no? Nothing. You were just like, fuck that. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, yeah. We're over you. Was it, he was brought from the FBI, correct? He had been working as uh, as a uh, informant for several agencies, mm-hmm. the LAPD and the feds. Yeah. Going back to Orlando Anderson, why do you think Las Vegas did not go after him at that point? Just absolute lack of evidence? After Orlando Anderson? Well, they did. I mean, there was search warrants, and they, they pulled him in, and they questioned him. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just didn't have enough to uh, to prosecute him. Of course, he doesn't confess to anything. Nobody right. else is uh, is fingering him or yeah. identifying him. Yeah. Um, so they just didn't have enough to prosecute him. Yeah. 
Do you believe in these narratives that at the time, the atmosphere, like there was one theory I read that Las Vegas was trying to rebrand itself. So they didn't Mm. want any type of news about, you know, a dead rapper. Right. Do you think that's true? Do you think, does the police force actually think about that when yeah, these things public, happen? public image is important. And mm-hmm. for the city, the, you know, tourism and all of that can be affected. So, yeah, of course, you don't want bad press. Yeah. Um, nobody does. But where does that come from? Is it coming from the, the chief saying that? Is it like, is there, like, how does that work within the department to kind of squash something like that? Well, they didn't squash anything. Yeah. I mean, they didn't com- they didn't intentionally, you know, disregard anything. They just mm-hmm. were unable to make the progress that we would hope they'd make. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like they're like, all right. I mean, we already have the dead rapper. That doesn't yeah. change. Yeah. Whether you bring somebody to justice or not, it doesn't change the fact that you have a shooting in Las Vegas. Right. Rappers did. So the the logic behind that really doesn't settle. Um but, of course, the city doesn't want people to think that if they come to Las Vegas, there's a bunch of gang members running around with guns and, yeah. and that they're fighting in the casino lobbies and they're doing shootings out on the streets. Nobody wants that kind of publicity. Yeah, of course. But covering up that murder doesn't help that situation. Yeah. It actually makes it worse. What what happened with the gun? So you had a ballistics match. Uh, so we had a gun that was taken out of a backyard in Compton that was associated with one of the crips that was in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a Glock 40 caliber, which is the same brand and make of uh, Brandon caliber, the gun that shot Tupac. Mm-hmm. So we have it taken down. We have uh, um, photographic images taken. It's, it's called the Niven system. And you take um, impressions and photographs, load them into a system, and it'll say whether it matches another, um, another homicide or another shooting. Right. Um, with that type of weapon so we get a photographic match mm-hmm. but that's kind of the superficial investigation now you have to have an actual firearms examiner compare the bullet casings that are made that are discovered at the scene of two box murder right. and the casings that are fired and discharged from this new gu- this gun yep and he looks under a microscope and he says no they don't match and so the photographs lead you to believe they match his examination says they don't. We have to accept his, you know, we have to accept his conclusions. Um, and that's just, you know, it was very discouraging. I thought we had the right gun. So you didn't feel it was a cover-up. You just believe it was truly a technicality. Yeah, it's just one of those things that on mm-hmm. the surface we thought we had it, but when under scrutiny, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. And it seems that seems to be the um, this entire case. Where it's like, the closer you get, you're like, oh, <laughs> that was a mirage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, that one was an interesting one there. So, because it, it, it's weird because like maybe the way I perceive the book or maybe how they put it on television, like you all were just like, oh, uh, Las Vegas are not willing to cooperate. But no, the reality is it's, it's yeah. a bit... It's- yeah, it's a it's a television series. There's mm-hmm. a lot of artistic license taken. They have yeah. to build in conflict because that's sure. what's dri- uh, that's what drives story. Right. And so, yeah, you, they took a lot of artistic liberty, but at the nuts and bolts, they are telling the true story. Yeah. Um, but some of the dynamics of what was happening between people and between agencies, all of that was a bit of a, a 
a creative license. Yeah. How did you feel that they got Josh Dumel to play you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> My wife was stoked. Um, yeah, so... Uh, did you have a chance to hang out with him? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, he's a wonderful human being. He's just a down-to-earth guy. Yeah. I'm really happy that, you know, that he got to play that role. Um, really, really cool guy. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one thing I'll just have to mention, it's not necessarily that I need a comment from it, but um, I watched at least four or five documentaries, and every documentary that you were put in, Minus the one that was 100% you, which is your 2015 documentary, self-titled, the murder rap one. They cut you off every time you're about to go into the rational explanation. It is shocking. And I will sit there, I will read the book, and I'm watching it. I'm like, okay, he's about to say it. Cut. I could not even believe it. Right. At least four documentaries is like this. Yeah. Do you think that's just Hollywood just constantly sensationalizing this? The for in many of these cases, um, it's documentary filmmakers are there to tell a story, a mm-hmm. historical story. The actual truth is a secondary issue. It's what's how do we tell this in an entertaining way mm-hmm. and provide different perspectives, different points of view, allow the audience to make their own decision. That's how they go into it. It's not like we are going to disclose the truth and give everybody, you know. So yeah. it's it's very frustrating. In fact, and to my point, it's like you probably are familiar with making a murderer. Yes. Right? Well, now there's a documentary coming out showing that how much was omitted, how mm. much was done intentionally yeah. to drive the narrative of that guy's innocence. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, there's a lot of information to contradict that that's omitted. Right. Because that doesn't feed either the agenda or the narrative that the storyteller wants to yeah. to do. So it's it's dishonest in my opinion, um, but it, it is, it's the nature of the business. I feel like they don't want the story to die. Mm. That's what I feel. I feel like there's so much, ra- I mean, Tupac, uh, superstar, Biggie, superstar, and they just, they don't want to let this mirage go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sensational. Yeah. It really is just sensational. And conspiracy theories are sensational. Yeah, absolutely. And they're more interesting. It reminds me of that documentary on um, Netflix. It, it, it took place in, um, in L.A. on Skid Row. That poor girl that rented the house, or rented uh, the hotel room on Skid Row. I forget the name of the hotel. It was like Hotel... Cecil. Cecil, yes. Yeah. And... The conspiracy theories that came out about that because she's like hiding in the in the elevator and she's thinking someone is coming at her, but the poor girl that ends up coming out, she was literally having a bipolar episode, completely schizophrenic. Yeah, yeah, and she was seeing things that weren't there, and that's all it was. She and she just, wasn't taking her medicine. She wasn't taking her meds, and so she actually, uh, as you know, probably know that when people that have psychological disorders are off their medicine. Mm-hmm. Strange shit happens. Yeah. In their minds. And that's all it was. It's just that simple. And she thought that she could seek refuge up on the on the um, roof of the building. She gets into a tank that she thought, you know, and she didn't know the water level was going to drastically drop. Right. And the next thing she knows, she can't pull herself out. She drowns. Yeah. But yeah, all the conspiracy theory about, you know, this heavy metal guy in Mexico. And, yeah. you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just storytelling. 
Yeah, it is. It's truly storytelling. And I I don't like that they suppress what you have said, but I think today the fact that Keefe D has been arrested, I can't even believe you're here the day it happened. I know. This is so wild. I, I know. It's just what a great day. What a great day. Right, uh, we're going to celebrate after that. Drinks, drinks, perfect. drinks. Um, I mean, I think it's... I think it's amazing, and your story should be told more. Stop with the conspiracy theories. Yeah. These are real people that have never really truly been laid to rest. You know, um, the mothers never had solace about it. So I, I think people should think about that when we're going through these stories. And it wasn't just straight-up gang violence. I think Tupac in particular, I don't want to call him a victim. He had his issues. Don't get me wrong. Brilliant yeah. person, but had his issues. But... Suge took the opportunity to get him out of jail at that time. Right. Tupac, I personally have had a family member go to prison and when a two-year stint. When he got out, he acted almost invincible, but he was under this guise of what I called this jailhouse talk that was told to him. And, like, unfortunately he would spout conspiracy theories. So I feel like you can even see it in Tupac's music. Like he was just like talking about being Machiavelli and like, he's going to live forever yeah. and nothing can touch him. And I think Suge was just really, really pushing this narrative with him. And he entered the gang politics when he hit Orlando. Right. And then right. the retaliation happened. Yeah. There's a, it's a, it, there's, there's interesting layers to that. Um, Tupac wanted to belong. He wanted to be part of something. He felt betrayed in New York. He felt like the people he trusted back there betrayed him. Now he's got a new group of people that he feels have have his back. Mm -hmm. And so that is, and so he wants to ingratiate himself um, with that new family. Mm -hmm. And they, they appreciated him. And so there was this bonding going on. And then he's got Suge Knight as this kind of mentor figure. Yeah. And um, it just all that, and, and this is, this won't, probably sit well with your younger listeners but you gotta keep in mind Tupac's he's 25 years old yeah you know he's got the maturity of a 25 year old oh you're an idiot you're full in your 20s <laughs> yeah you're full of um emotion yeah and all these things are happening in your life that are very dis- disrupting mm-hmm. being accused of rape and sodomy and sent to prison and and getting you know beat up in a lobby and pistol whipped and mm-hmm. all of this stuff's happening as he's becoming an international superstar. Yeah. So that all of this, I mean, it's probably more than any 25-year-old could responsibly manage. Absolutely. And so, yeah, and so he made some bad decisions. Uh, had there been better mentors in his life, maybe this didn't happen. One thing I could not understand, but I do also understand, why the fuck didn't him and Biggie just talk? Like, God forbid you have a fucking conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, Big, they were friends before. Why couldn't Big just pick up and be like, oh, by the way, that song was recorded before this happened to you. Right. Here's the proof. Here's yeah. the date on the track. I'm on a plane right now. I want to talk to you. We need to settle this. This is ridiculous. Yeah. It's all, again, 24 and 25 years old. Right. And, uh, but this has been going on for a few years. So now it's like 21 year olds, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And just the emotions and the immaturity. Yeah, definitely. Prevented that from happening. But I, w- I wish <laughs> I wish that, you know, um, I wish somebody would have been there to intervene. And it was never going to be shook. 
Oh, God, no. Suge put the fuel on the fire. Yeah. He made it worse. Had somebody been there to intervene, um, maybe that maybe that happens. Maybe they get together and they s- And I feel issues. like Big was just straight-up collateral damage. Completely. Completely. And uh, just, do you think he even knew what was coming for him? Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't either. No. I feel like he was just... Um, no, you know, look, this is a horrible phrase, but fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah, I really think so. Yeah, he's just kicking back. He's got, you know, he thinks these issues are behind him. Um, He's going to Europe. Yep. He's got this upcoming album. Unfortunately, Tupac's dead. He's probably not happy about that. Probably Mm -hmm. grieves him. Sure. But Suge Knight's out of the picture. He's in jail now. Mm -hmm. And now the world is his oyster. Yeah. Until it's not. It was, was there any proof or any evidence that uh, Puffy was told not to come to L.A.? Because I've heard that swirl around, but I don't know. I, I think there's some I think there's some information, some valid information that Biggie was told not to come to L.A., not Puffy. Okay. Like they, they just thought it wasn't a good idea for Biggie to come out here. Mm-hmm. But that would have applied to both of them. It would have made sense for neither of them. But they had a false sense of security. Again, you know, Tupac has been dead for six months. Suge Knight's in jail. They think the problems are behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they just kind of step into the hornet's nest. So what technically could they get on Keefe D now? I mean, he did not pull the trigger. Is it just accessory to murder? No, it's still conspiracy to commit murder. It would be conspiracy like first-degree murder, yeah. Okay. It's the same thing Orlando would have been charged with. Got it. Well... Today's a good day. Yeah, today's a good yeah. day. And thank you so much for Absolutely. coming by. This My has pleasure. been amazing. Oh, that's awesome. You did a great awesome job. I mean, you did really <laughs> a deep dive, and I appreciate your questions because they're really well thought out. And um, yeah, this is one of the better interviews that I've been able to do. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for stopping by. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>